0: Hey, this is Alicia and this is Emily and we're the hosts of murder in the rain and you're listening to the apple for the teacher podcast a podcast about true crime in schools Join Anna Thomas a teacher and your host as she presents the bad apples within the school system You'll hear school stories that are tragic shocking unbelievable and outright bizarre Welcome everyone to today's episode my name is Anna Thomas and we are now up to episode number 67. So welcome everyone wherever you are in the world. And as usual, let's do some hellos to the people who have joined our Facebook group. Hello to Jill Carpenter-Martin, Rosemary Torres, Jesse Rice, Sibyl Gunner, Bev Jordan, Anthony Burrows and Ed Chico. Well, they were really very simple names this time, not like some of the other names I've had to try to pronounce. Now, can I also say one thing about the Facebook group? I've noticed that there seems to be an issue with people trying to join the group. Just lately, I've noticed that people have requested to join and then these people's names just disappear. So I'm not sure whether people have changed their mind about joining. But since it's happened quite a few times, I'm sort of thinking that it has something to do with Facebook. So if you're trying to join and I haven't approved you, can you please try again? Now, if you still have difficulty, can you please get in touch with me and let me know that you're having difficulty getting in? Because then I know that it has something to do with Facebook. You know, it really amazes me that countries around the world where people listen to this podcast Today we are going to visit Spain, so there are listeners from Spain, so hello to you. It is tradition in Spain for people to have two surnames. Their first one is their fathers, and the second one their mothers. Here is an example. Carmen Garcia Sanchez. Carmen Garcia Sanchez. (laughs) Oh, pretty pathetic, right? All you Spanish people are saying. And here is a tradition on New Year's Eve. When the clock strikes midnight, people challenge themselves to eat 12 grapes, one for each second the clock beats for. If they succeed, it is said that they will have good luck for the rest of the year. And in Spain, there is no tooth fairy, but instead a tooth mouse called Ratoncito Perez. Now, driving in flip-flops is illegal in Spain. Here in Australia, we call them thongs. Gee, we really could not have this law in Australia because wearing thongs is such an Australian thing. So definitely this law would never exist in Australia. And here is an interesting fact about the Eiffel Tower. It was planned to be built in the Spanish city of Barcelona in 1887, but the people didn't want it. Hmm, I bet they really regret that now. And finally, there is a church in Spain which has been under construction since 1882. That's about 140 years. It is expected to be completed in 2026. Despite still being under construction, it is open to the public and has been named a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So, let's go on now to preview the story today. It's called Eye of the Storm. The students were on the school bus, on their way to school. What happened? For this story, we go back 90 years to the state of Colorado in the US. The year was 1931, which was the early stages of the Great Depression. The story took place in a county called Kiowa which was situated in the southeastern part of Colorado near the Kansas border. The county had a population of about 4,000 people and its industries were agriculture, stock raising and dairy farming. Houses had no electricity and water had to be pumped from wells. The year of 1931 had seen below average rainfall and the county experienced drought and dust storms and became referred to as a dust bowl. In the county there were 19 school districts with 31 schools. One of these schools was the Pleasant Hill School. It had 30 students from first grade to eighth grade with the children coming from the nearby farming families. The school had two basic school buildings, one for grades one to six and the other for grades seven and eight. The school had no trees or playground equipment. The older students were taught by a first-year teacher named Franz Friday, while the younger grades were taught by an experienced teacher, Maud Moser. Now we go to the day of March 26, 1931. When the children woke up that day getting ready for school, it was noted that it was unusually warm for that time of year about 60 degrees, which is about 15 degrees Celsius. The school had two school buses. One of the drivers, Oscar Reinert, transported the students to and from school each day on the western section of the county, while Carl Miller transported those on the eastern side. Carl Miller's bus wasn't actually a bus as we know it today, but a 1929 Chevrolet truck. It had a wooden body attached to its bed and the seats were wooden benches which ran along each side under the windows. Miller had built the wooden canopy atop the chassis. During the summer, he would remove the wooden top to use the truck for farm tasks. Two windows in the rear were broken and cardboard had been used to cover the openings. This type of a makeshift bus was common at the time. Miller worked on his farm in the warmer months and then supplemented his income by driving the school bus in the cooler months. One of the students was Laura Huffaker. You will hear from her throughout the story, recounting what happened. Her quotes were only given two years ago when she was at the amazing age of 94. Here is what she said about Miller's bus. It was an old old-fashioned bus. The bus driver had fixed it up good, they thought, and it was pretty good for out there. Although the morning started off very nice, there was snow forecast for the day, Laura said. We started for school that morning and mother tied a hood on me under my chin and said, now it's going to be cold today, so you leave this on and keep warm. Laura and her five siblings were picked up by Miller along with 14 other students. By the time they arrived at school, it was noted that the sky was getting darker and the wind was also increasing. Light snow was also starting to fall. Before the students arrived, the teachers began discussing the weather conditions. After listening to the radio, they decided that it was best to have drivers take the students back home. This decision was made due to a number of factors. They didn't have any food or blankets in the schoolhouse and only a small amount of water. There also wasn't enough coal to heat the building and they didn't have a phone. Telephones were very rare in that area. So the decision had been made and Miller's bus was the first to arrive at school. The teachers instructed Miller to transport the children back home, saying that if they left immediately, they could beat the storm. However, Miller disagreed, saying that they would be safer in the school and that the storm probably wouldn't last long. He also thought the parents may come to the school to pick up their children themselves. But the teachers insisted, and Miller reluctantly agreed. The other bus also arrived and the driver was informed of the decision that had been made. So it was about 9 a.m., when the two buses left the school. With busloads of very happy students, that school had been cancelled. The conditions deteriorated very quickly and a snow blizzard descended on the area, making visibility difficult. Throughout this story, you will hear audio from people who are related to the children who were on the bus. This first audio clip describes what the conditions were like on that day. There's three different types of storms. You had an even snowstorm where the snow would, would accumulate, a nice little snowfall. Then there was another one, you have some wind with it, but you could see a distance. But this storm here, it was just blasting snow. They call it a, the northern. And it came out of the northwest. You just couldn't see nothing. And those type of storms, the farmers used to, they used to run a rope from the house to the outhouse and to the barn. They would hold on to the rope because they couldn't see. But when that wind hit, that's what did it. My sister was supposed to go to school that day and my older brother my mother told him to go out and saddle and bridle her horse he went out and saddled it and come back in and he told mama i don't think opalata to go to school today there's a terrible storm coming and he finally persuaded her to go out and look she come back in and she said take the horse back to the barn and unbridle it so he did by the time he got that done he couldn't even see the house it was snowing so bad within a short time miller realized he would not be able to reach the children's homes so he decided to head to a farmhouse that he knew of nearby where they could shelter from the storm however the windscreen had become frosted over and it was very difficult to see where they were going as a result he missed the turn to the farmhouse and unknowingly took a wrong turn he soon realized they were lost as they should have reached the farmhouse by now. Miller then decided to keep driving until he saw the next house. After only driving for about 30 minutes, the bus suddenly got stuck in a ditch. The engine stalled and Miller couldn't get it started again. He got out and tried to work out where they were, but they were completely engulfed in snow. With the truck now being stationary, it didn't take long for it to be covered in snow. The bus had no heater and the children huddled together trying to keep warm. The wind picked up and then quite suddenly a gust blew off the cardboard on the back windows, resulting in snow streaming into the cabin. As the morning had started off warm, many of the children hadn't been wearing very warm clothes. Miller tried to start a fire using the children's schoolbooks, but it created too much smoke so they had to open the windows for ventilation. They had their school lunches with them, which were inside metal pails, but the pails froze shut and they couldn't pry them open. Miller then instructed the children to move around in the bus to keep warm, with the younger children just thinking it was a game. However, the older children realised the seriousness of the situation and tried to distract the younger ones. Here is Laura recalling what happened. They said, don't sit still, don't sit still. Keep jumping, keep jumping, keep moving because if you quit moving and shut your eyes, you'll go to sleep and that's the end. When you're young like that, you just hope to keep warm and try to get warm and jump. As time progressed, the storm did not let up. Miller then sent out the oldest boy and girl to see if they could locate any landmarks which could determine where they were. But the wind was too strong, blowing them over, and they retreated back into the bus. Laura describes here about the cold. My sister had me on her lap and held her arms around me to help keep me warm. All the skin came off her fingers later, from freezing of course. Her hands froze, but she never let go. I probably wasn't so scared because of my sister. Meanwhile, when the children failed to return home after school, the parents just assumed that they were taking shelter at school. Without phones, there was no way to know where they were. And it was also common for farmhouses to take people in during storms. The storm continued to rage into the night and everyone kept moving, trying not to fall asleep. They somehow made it through the long night and into the next morning. Miller decided that the children wouldn't be able to survive much longer in the bus. The snow had continued to pour into the bus from the back windows. So he decided to set off on foot to find help. He instructed the older children to look after the younger ones. And he reportedly said, I'll be back in an hour and we'll make pancakes. Not long after he left, the older children noticed that one of the girls had stopped moving. Louise Stonebreaker had only been wearing a light sweater and had succumbed to the conditions. She just had a birthday and she got a new sweater and she wanted to wear that sweater to school. She'd gone through the day with just a light sweater. She was just staring off in space and that she would just take a short breath. My mom picked her up and carried her to the back of the bus and they would see that she would take just a short breath and and then wouldn't breathe for, you know, a long time and eventually the snow covered her face or eyes so they didn't have to look at her. Then two more children also died. Seven-year-old Kenneth Johnson and nine-year-old Bobby Brown. By the afternoon of that second day, the storm had eased a little. A man by the name of Bud Unteed had four children on the bus. It was his farmhouse that Miller had tried to get to. He assumed the children were at the school, so he set out in a horse-drawn wagon with food and blankets. The conditions were still difficult for him to navigate but he managed to make it to the school. He found that the schoolhouse was deserted. The wind had blown the snow through the windows into the schoolhouse. Then two other fathers arrived and together they began searching for the buses. By late afternoon, the children were very weak and stopped exercising. They lay down to go to sleep with the older children lying on top of them to keep warm. Finally, the two fathers found the stranded bus. My mom heard the crunching of the wheels on the snow and the horses just before they were rescued. The door broke broke open and it was Mr. Antieta. And he said, oh, what a sight. If the fathers had been any later, they would have found an entire busload of kids who were not alive. They carried out the 17 children, placing them into the wagons and went to a nearby farmhouse. It was now 5pm and they had spent 33 hours on the bus. Here is Laura talking about the rescue. It was heaven. They took us to my cousin's house and when we got there she was frying potatoes. She put blankets down and we all lay down on the floor. My dad came over and quite a few of the men and sat with us, and bathed and rubbed our feet, and tried to keep us warm, and took care of us. That night, two more of the children died, Mary Louise Miller and Arlo Unteed. My grandfather found the bus. His son Arlo appeared to be in really good condition. Arlo seemed to be a little more alert. They were all semi-conscious when they found them in the bus. My grandfather wrapped Arlo in a blanket and put him in the corner and then went to deal with the other kids because Arlo seemed so good. When he went back later, Arlo was dead. And so my father and my uncle and their sister and my grandfather always blamed themselves for Arlo's death. Edward Reinert, the owner of the farmhouse, travelled to a nearby house that had a phone, alerting everyone that they had been found and requested a doctor. A doctor was able to make it to the farmhouse, attending to the children. A pilot was also able to fly in nurses and they took the children in the worst condition to a nearby hospital. All of the children were eventually transported to hospital. The bodies of the deceased children were also retrieved from the bus. Miller's valiant attempt to search for help also ended in tragedy. He was found three miles away from the bus. The ordeal had taken six lives. Laura recounted, He decided he just couldn't sit there and wait. He said, I've got to go and try and find someone. He got out of the bus and he left and he walked a little ways. He hung onto the fence. He was all cut up when they found him. He froze to death. He had tried his best and had kept walking and walking and he wasn't too far from my cousin's house. Here is what Laura said about the other children who died. It was terrible. The first one was terrible because she just sat there and was gone. You knew everybody and had lived with them your whole life and you knew them ever since you were little. Laura said that in hindsight, it was good that their parents didn't come looking for them. They didn't even look for us because they thought we were at school, and that's the best thing that could have happened because if they'd have gone out, they would have got lost too and froze to death. Laura also describes her time in the hospital. We stayed there, I guess, for about two weeks. My sister and my friends kept saying, Laura, Laura, ask if we can go home because I was the youngest and they pushed everything on me. When we got home, my mother had donuts made and I remember getting up there and grabbing me a donut. She said that thankfully she and her siblings recovered quickly but one of her sister's hands were scarred. She could still use them and thank goodness she didn't lose them. After what they had endured, of course, there were physical injuries, but they also had to deal with psychological trauma. She remembered people asking, how come your family all made it instead of some of the others? My mother always said, well, I don't know, but they always kept active. Some of them blamed the teachers. I was so young, how would I know? Now, I can imagine how it must have been for them all to go back to school with some of their classmates now no longer there. I would just be really sad looking at their empty desks. And here is what Laura said about that. I can't remember too much about that because it was bad. It was just bad. It was hard to go back. It was tough with losing everyone. Now we will go on to look at one particular boy who survived and played a prominent role in the aftermath of the tragedy, although it wasn't his doing. He was 13-year-old Brian Untied. It was his family's house that the driver was trying to get to so that they could shelter from the storm. When news of the tragedy became known, various media outlets descended on the area, keen to get interviews with anyone involved. One particular reporter was talking to Brian's father and said to him, What this story needs is a hero. How would you like your son to be the hero? Brian's photo then accompanied the newspaper stories, although he never claimed he was a hero and said that he had not done anything different from the other children. But who knows, perhaps Brian was just being humble. I read that many of the people saw the invasion of the media as intrusive and that they sought to profit from the tragedy and sensationalise it, using Brian as the so-called poster boy. Although all the children received well wishes, presents and donations, it was Brian who received greater attention, so much so that he was invited to meet with the then President Herbert Hoover in Washington DC. However, I read that Brian wasn't really comfortable with all the attention. As with many deaths, the coroner was called and visited the site where the bus had stopped. He determined that the deaths were the result of accidental freezing and therefore declared that an inquest would not be conducted. The tragedy was also never investigated, which I found surprising, but I guess we have to remember that it was 90 years ago, and of course it would be a totally different situation today. At the funerals, there was an open casket for the six victims. As the coffins were being placed in the ground, planes from the Colorado National Guard flew overhead and scattered flowers. Then, five months later, a special monument was erected at the scene where the bus was stranded. They placed a time capsule of newspaper clippings about the tragedy inside the monument. Now, you are also probably wondering what happened to the other bus. After leaving the school, they stopped at a farmhouse and sheltered for the next day and a half. There were those who blamed Miller, the driver, for the tragedy, and some also blamed the teachers. But it's always easy to blame in hindsight, isn't it? Three of the families who lost children sued the school district on the basis that Miller's bus was not properly equipped to withstand a storm. The bus had been insured and the families argued that the insurance company was negligent for not examining the bus before issuing the insurance. The families did manage to receive a payout. So was there a legacy from this tragedy? Yes there was. It prompted a number of changes regarding safety. From that point on there were new standards for school buses. Prior there were no regulations for school buses. And ones like Miller's were common. Eventually, all school buses were painted yellow to allow for greater visibility. Now, this has answered a question that I have had for so long. Being from Australia, I've noticed how American school buses are all yellow. And I've always wondered about this. Of course, I just assumed that a bright colour like yellow was used for the children's safety. But little did I know that one day I would find out the answer through my own podcast. Buses were also fitted with two-way radios and also telephones were installed in all schools. A policy was also implemented for school being released during bad weather. Now let's go back and get some final words from Laura, who was 94 when I found her story two years ago. Laura says today, that snowstorms really make her anxious. It always brings back memories. It bothers me some to talk about it, but still it needs to be told. Laura can't say enough for the people who looked after the children after the storm. Everybody was trying to console those who had lost someone. I appreciate everything that was done for me. I do every year. I don't miss a year that it doesn't pop into my mind when that date comes around. I think, oh my goodness, this is the day of the bus tragedy. Now, personally, if I had been through this ordeal, I wonder how I would have been in the years after in terms of, would I talk about it? Would I want the story to be passed down to subsequent generations? Or would I just want to leave it in the past? Well, Laura's granddaughter, Bessie, only recently found out the full story about what happened. Bessie said, I would hear when we would go over to Grandma's house, there would be these whispers of a bus tragedy and I would always kind of perk up and hope to hear more details, but it never came. Bessie had then found a book about the tragedy some 70 years later called Children of the Storm. After reading the book, she visited the Pleasant Hill area where the school had been located. She went and visited the site where the bus had stopped and also the cemetery. She said, It was a kind of surreal thing for me. I couldn't believe this was real. I told my husband I want to go there and see this in person. I don't think I expected to be as emotional as I was. When I saw the bus driver's marker, it smacked me straight in the heart. That's the guy who tried to save my family, and he died doing it. It gave Bessie a whole new understanding and appreciation of what her grandmother had gone through. I have seen how she handles herself in the wake of personal tragedy. We've had personal tragedies throughout the years as a family and she and Grandpa were the rock. She did it in her own quiet way. They banded together as a family then, just as we still do now. Despite happening 90 years ago, I have been amazed by the number of old black and white photos that I have been able to find. I will put all of these in Facebook and here is some information about the photos that you will see. There is a photo of the school. It stopped operating in the 1940s and the two buildings were moved to a nearby town called Holly. One of them is now on the site of the Church of Nazarene and the other is still being lived in. How amazing is that? The house where the rescued children were taken still stands today and it's owned by the subsequent generation of the same family. Those who died were buried in the Holly Cemetery with a monument erected in their memory. The cemetery was then later extended for further burials Of any of the children and their families. How lovely is that? So, as people died, they were all buried together. And I was wondering if the cemetery might also just have had people from the general public, but I wasn't able to find any information about this. So, it sounds like it was wholly used for anyone associated with the families. As already mentioned, a monument was built at the exact site where the bus was found. When you look at the photo, you can see that it's on a plot of flat land, seemingly in the middle of nowhere. There is nothing in the background to see except flat, dusty ground, and this is what they call a prairie in America. There are virtually no trees or bushes, which totally explains how the wind in that area was often very vicious, as there were no trees to absorb the wind. They managed to retrieve the bus and then it can be seen in a photo at the cemetery during the unveiling of the tragedy monument. But so sadly, no one ever knew what happened to the bus. I know that my kids would absolutely love to see that old school bus and to get the opportunity to actually go inside one of them. They would just be absolutely thrilled as I would as well. So here are the names of the people who lost their lives. The driver, Carl Miller, and five children. Robert Brown, Kenneth Johnson, Mary Miller, who was the driver's daughter, Louise Stonebreaker, and Arlo Untied. Now, you know, when I reflect on my podcast, I have learned so many things. And there is one thing in particular about this story which has prompted me to do something. In this story, we saw how Bessie didn't know anything about the tragedy, and it led me to think about my own family and how much I know about my ancestors. My podcast has prompted me to do my own family history, especially while my parents are still in good health. Someone needs to keep the family history documented, otherwise information gets lost over time. So that's what I'm going to do. A lot of the stories that I have told would not have been possible if information hadn't been documented by someone. So, that's the end of that story today. Let's now have a preview of the next episode. It's called Stolen. The children were taken from their homes. Why? To end this episode, I will leave you with this quote from the Greek philosopher Aristotle. The roots of education are bitter. But the fruit is sweet. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.